I'm Halima Atta, and welcome back to another episode of A Little Perspective. Welcome, welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope your week has been amazing and filled with as little stress as possible. And to give sort of a quick update on what I've been up to outside of the podcast, of course, I would like to say that I've officially adjusted to my school routine. And while I returned back to school in mid-August, I think around August 16th or 18th, I can't remember the exact date. So yeah, it's been almost a month since then. It's been pretty difficult to get back into the swing of things. And, you know, not having the luxury of waking up 10 minutes before class started at 7.40 with just enough time to brush my teeth and sit at my desk, which was like right next to my bed, that's something that definitely hit me pretty hard. And took a lot of practice to move on from, but I'm pretty good now. I'm now able to wake up at a pretty decently early time and get to school on time as well. So that's a good thing. But in more recent events, I actually celebrated my 17th birthday just last week on September 1st. It was very fun. Um, It sucks having to go to school on your birthday, though. I know a lot of some people like the attention, like being able to see their friends. But I prefer not having to be in a school setting on my birthday. I just don't like commemorating that day in the classroom, but it was pretty good. Um, My actual like dinner was really fun. But on that note, I actually had trouble deciding what to wear to school. And I'm I don't consider myself the most fashionable person ever, but it is nice to like dress up and actually have an outfit you enjoy wearing on your birthday because if you're going to be stuck at school, you might as well, you know, look good and look presentable. So yeah, trying to plan an outfit while simultaneously trying to dodge a dress code violation was very complicated in itself, and I found that I was really concerned about how I looked and whether I was adhering to the dress code over just finding something that I thought I liked, that I thought I looked good in. And of course, it's important to follow dress code policy, but I found that I was constantly tossing outfits that were completely appropriate, like just normal t-shirts. But you know, they were like a centimeter and a half above my midriff, so it wasn't okay to wear. And it was just really stressful, you know, knowing that I was trying to dodge getting a dress code violation while also trying to find a top that I really liked. It was very difficult. So within this 20 minutes or so that I was trying, just desperately looking through my closet, throwing out a bunch of tops that I just couldn't wear to school, I started thinking of all the experiences that my friends had told me about. They were getting dress coded upon arriving to school, and it was I found that it was predominantly girls. I hadn't heard of a boy at our school get dress coded for what they were wearing upon their arrival there. For example, one of my friends had actually gotten dress coded as soon as they stepped out of the senior parking lot that we have. It's like adjacent to the senior patio we have at our school. They got dress coded for wearing a tank top. That was like, it wasn't like, a, I don't know how to describe the term, but it's like something next to a spaghetti strap top in terms of the width of the actual like straps on the top. And so they got dress coded for that. They got in trouble with the person, the administrator standing at the gate of the school. They had to put a jacket on, cover up, stuff like that. However, I couldn't help but think that one time I was sitting in class, this was my AP Gov class, and there was a a boy sitting near me, and he had like this muscle tank on. I don't know if that's the correct term, but it's basically a tee that like shows your entire arm and it like cuts into like your collarbone. So like a pe like a quarter of your collarbone is out on each side of it, as well as your arms. And it's like completely, it's just completely cut. It's pretty it exposes a lot. And so I couldn't help but think like that. I I saw him around school. He never put a jacket on like he didn't get dress coded. And this isn't to say that like I'm shaming him for what he was wearing, but rather to say that there are definitely some inconsistencies when it comes to the school's enforcing of the dress code. And so that's when I realized like people oftentimes you you hear students complain about the dress code. And it's not even I realize now that it's not just because they're not allowed to wear the clothes that they want, but 
there are a lot of inconsistencies within how the school and the school board actually enforces them. But I'm not the only student who's been frustrated with the school dress code and how it's enforced. I've been seeing outrage over these policies all over social media for a very long time, meaning its problematic nature has been acknowledged for a pretty long time now. And that led me to begin wondering why such controversial dress codes exist in the first place. So as you can tell from what I just said, as well as this episode's title, continue listening to learn all about the modern day high school dress code, including its founding roots, why it exists, and for a closer look at its links to both sexism and racism. So as always, in order to actually delve into the problematic nature of the modern day high school dress code, it's important to define what it even is. Now, when you look up what is a dress code on Google, the first option that comes up defines it as a set of rules, usually written and posted, specifying the required manner of dress at a school, office, club, restaurant, etc. Now, obviously, different scenarios and settings and environments call for different dress codes, and for that reason, dress code and dress code policies can vary from region to region. So for the sake of time, I'll be focusing on dress code policies within American secondary or high school level schools. So while most high schools, public high schools at least, follow a very similar dress code outline, I decided to look for a specific one that I could just reference throughout the entire episode. So I will be kind of referring back and forth to the dress code policy of one high school in the Florence Unified School District, which is a school district including grades K through 12 in Arizona. So let's just take a look at some of the policies outlined in this document. So the first thing that's listed on this dress code policy document says minimum dress and grooming code. Minimum, by that they mean the amount of skin that's being revealed, what's being exposed. And so just looking at this first bullet point, I can see that the tops are the most regulated aspect of the entire dress code. I mean, just looking at this, there is like an average of 10 bullet points for each category dealing with tops and what to wear. And then there's like an average of three or two to three bullet points for every single category discussing pants or shoes or hats. So it's definitely, I'm already seeing an imbalance here. But to read a few of these bullet points, tops that reveal bra straps, cleavage, bare midriffs, or bare backs will not be allowed. Tops may not be see-through. No tube or halter tops. No strapless tops. Straps must be at least two inches wide to be worn. No spaghetti straps. Now looking here, you can already tell that this dress code is targeting young girls, young women. And while obviously clothes aren't specifically gendered, these are clothing items that are specifically targeted towards that demographic, which mainly consists of young teen girls. I mean, tops that show cleavage, bra straps, we're clearly talking about clothing that is mainly advertised to young girls. But even just looking at this set of rules itself, not even going into the other categories, it definitely seems a little odd to me, and I can understand the frustration from many people in the public as to why these types of, like, these body parts, like shoulders and backs, are being seen as something that's overly sexualized. It's very odd that in the same sentence, or in the same category, if you will, that says tops can't reveal cleavage or bare midriffs, you also can't show your shoulders. So it's just like, what can you show? And it's a little odd that that's kind of being grouped in the same category as like bra straps, which aren't even suggestive in themselves. So I noticed that moving on throughout the document, all of the other categories like pants, shorts, hats aren't really... I guess you could say patrolled as much, as much as the tops. I mean, I'm not even seeing a lot of specifics here. Just pants must be pulled up. No rips. Leggings may, must be reasonable and must be modest. And that's it. Like the tops are just so heavily controlled in, like in comparison to all the other items on this list. So that's obviously a little weird to me. And again, it's an imbalance. They're not really enforcing the rules relating to hats and pants as much as they are the tops, which are clearly aimed towards young women. 
And another thing that I noticed immediately was that this dress code and all the policies within it seemed to prioritize the aesthetic, like the physical look of what students are wearing, as opposed to their comfort, their safety, etc. It's important to note that this school district is located in Arizona, a place which is notorious for being very, very hot. And it's not even a humidity type heat where, you know, you can at least like, oh, it's a little warm. It's like more of a sweat inducing feeling. But no, Arizona has dry heat, dry heat that can be excruciating and very uncomfortable, especially when you're wearing things that aren't exposing a lot of skin. So looking at the dress codes, seeing that they're patrolling tops that even just show your shoulders or more less than two inches of a width when talking about straps in your tops it can i can definitely see why students would be so frustrated over this and the enforcement of these rules because when you're living in a place like arizona it's very typical for students to want to wear less because it's more comfortable for them not necessarily because they want to be suggestive just so that they can be comfortable and so it's weird that i'm looking at the category that talks about shoes the only bullet point there's one bullet point under shoes and it just says no bedroom slippers nothing else. But when you're looking at tops, you can't have tops or spaghetti straps. You can't have tops that reveal bra straps, no bare midriffs, but you're living in a place that is very, very hot. So it's something that's really, that can cause discomfort for the students. It's not even just, they're mainly focused on the appearance because students can't wear bedroom slippers, but they can wear like sandals or like flip-flops, but they can't wear any, any tops that expose their midriff or their bra strap, even if they're sweating, because Arizona is a very, very hot state. So it's very unfortunate that the school, at least this district, and many throughout the entire country, including mine, honestly, prioritize the aesthetic or the physical look of what students are wearing as opposed to their actual level of comfort. But all of this talk about the rules embedded in these dress codes in different states throughout the country make me wonder why they even exist in the first place. So we all know that dress codes exist for several reasons, but they can be divided into two main categories, with the first being to promote learning and an avoidance of distraction through uniformity. So the introductory paragraph of that dress code policy document that I just read from included a statement that said, dressing in a manner that may result in a distraction or disruption of a safe environment is considered inappropriate. So from the get-go, you can tell that a lot of these public high school specifically policies are kind of centered around protecting the students from distractions so that they can promote learning through focus and uniformity. But when I'm looking at these policies, another thing that they mention is safety and wanting students to be feel safe in these environments, which of course really aligns with the fact that a lot of the tops and clothes that students can't wear include like vulgar statements and inappropriate messages, stuff like that. But what stands out to me is the fact that clothing items that are associated with comfort are clumped into the same group as things that are seen as vulgar. So it makes sense that students can't wear things that have maybe like, I don't know, like skulls on them in an elementary school setting. But at the same time, they're not allowed to wear spaghetti straps or halter tops or tube tops. So it's very weird that they're seen in the same from the same kind of lens. Students can't be comfortable, but they also can't wear things that are vulgar. Like one makes sense and one doesn't. And it's it's policies like those that really just kind of represent an imbalance in these dress code policies. But to go back to what I was saying about why the dress code even exists in the first place, avoiding distraction for different students to promote learning and focus is one of the main reasons why these dress codes are the strict in the way that they are. And so I think another example of this could be the 
the fact that dress codes are considered a way to reduce bullying, for example. A lot of students, some students might come from lower um, economic classes, and for that reason, maybe they're not able to afford the same clothes that are trending that people want to be wearing at schools, in school settings. So in that sense, I could see why dress code policies would be considered effective, because, you know, if every student has to wear the same exact thing, or if every student is patrolled, I guess you could say, in the same way, no student feels out of place. So from this perspective, having strict dress codes, um, that's seen as a way to minimize bullying and distractions in the classroom. When in reality, a lot of the distractions I've seen in the classroom, somebody who's been in the classroom since they were in kindergarten, that's definitely not something that usually stems from what students are wearing. All of the times I'm just recalling that I've been distracted in the classroom have usually revolved around a student's behavior or a staff member maybe walking into the classroom. But besides those, I can't really think of a time where a student's outfit was really distracting me to the point where I couldn't even learn or focus on the curriculum. So even just looking at that first reason as to why dress codes exist in the first place, it kind of strikes me as weird that the people actually, like lawmakers or the people making these policies in the first place, put so much weight onto what students are wearing and they kind of make that seem as if it's the main reason why students get distracted in the classroom when the reasons are usually stemming from other things. The next main category that explains why these dress codes exist kind of relates to the ultimate goal of a lot of secondary schools within the country, which is to mimic a professional, real-world work environment. It's no surprise that schools within America mainly train students to enter the workforce. And while it doesn't really, while it's not really specified what types of jobs in the workforce students are encouraged to enter, most of them are aligned with more professional type settings. So just to read from the website of the Gresham Barlow School District in Oregon, the purpose of a dress code is to provide guidance to students and parents as to appropriate attire for school and at any school function. In addition, the dress code is a primary means of helping students learn a skill which is required for success in getting and keeping employment linked to attire. So in this statement alone, it's shown that aesthetic and the physical appearance of students and what they wear is a big part of why these dress codes exist. They may not care about the actual comfort of their students, but as long as they look a certain way that will mimic the real world setting of, the, of a job in the workforce, it's successful to them. But when looking at that dress code policy document I read from earlier, something that stood out to me was the ambiguity in terms of what is considered respectable or what can be deemed professional. When looking at the miscellaneous section of the dress code document I was looking at earlier, one statement says, styles of hair, dress, appearance, which adversely affect the educational process will not be tolerated. Now, looking at that first bullet point within that kind of subsection, if you will, styles of hair. Now, when I see that, I automatically think of racism and just race-related issues because looking at recent events that I've seen in the news, these styles of hair are almost never things that concern, you know, typical European-styled hair, type 1A, type 2A hair. It is almost always associated with cultural hairstyles like cornrows, dreads, braids, etc., so again, that ambiguity in these dress code policies and documents really prompts me to wonder, why is it that they're not being specific when they're talking about styles of hair that they strictly prohibit? Because we all know that they're trying to avoid using words like people of color, like black, like African American, which leads me to discuss why this is problematic. Coded language is a really big aspect of why dress code policies can be so problematic and why they're seen as controversial. Just to start off, gendered language is a very strong part of all of this. 
Have you ever noticed that a lot of dress code policies use phrases like "girls must not wear spaghetti straps" or "girls must not show cleavage"? What this does is characterize young girls, young women, as distractions who are expected to dress to avoid a certain response, a certain male response specifically, instead of placing the blame on the other individuals. So this definitely could be linked to victim blaming. So to look at that previously mentioned document in a more positive light, one thing that they did do well was not including gender language. They weren't saying girls shouldn't wear this or girls shouldn't wear that. Instead, they just said. Don't wear this, and if this applies to you, then we're talking about you. Which is a lot. It's it's definitely a step in the right direction, but there still are a lot of problems within it. And another one that I just explained that I wanted to elaborate on was that ambiguity in terms of hairstyles that cannot be worn. Oftentimes, when dress codes, public school, secondary school dress codes specifically, mention hairstyles that are strictly prohibited, they are targeting and almost always targeting students of color, especially black men. And by criminalizing males of color, they're working to single them out and separate them from people who have more Caucasian characteristics. So the hairstyle is actually a really major one. And while a lot of people don't think that you know how you style your hair carries a lot of weight, it really does when looking at it from a cultural perspective. So again, when reading in that dress code document that this school prohibits hairstyles, styles of hair, styles of dress and appearance, which Adversely affect the educational process. That just prompts me to think of what hairstyles they consider distracting, which usually align with cultural hairstyles. And to explain this link and the significance of that language that we see in all of these dress code policies and documents and rules, I wanted to highlight a couple stories from several Black students within the United States. First, we have a situation that involved DeAndre Arnold, an 18-year-old student in the Barbers Hill Independent School District in Mont Bellevue, Texas, who had been growing his dreadlocks since he was in seventh grade. Essentially, this student would cornrow his hair down or tie up his locks in a bun to make sure that it was away from his collar, away from his earlobes, so that he could meet the school district's dress code policy. But it got to a point where his hair was no longer able to adhere. To this policy, meaning that he was given an ultimatum where he had to either cut off his dreadlocks or face in-school suspension. As a result of not choosing to cut off his dreadlocks, this student was suspended. A story very similar to this included students Maya and Deanna Cook, who were twins in Mystic Valley Regional Charter School in Malden, Massachusetts. They had their hair professionally braided in an effort to become more connected to Black culture, given that they had white parents, adoptive parents, and it was labeled a uniform infraction. And the situation eventually escalated to the point of school punishment, where Deanna, who was a runner that qualified for the state finals in her school, was kicked off of her track team, and Maya was removed from the school. Softball team and told that she couldn't even attend the prom. So hearing stories like that, which have all, by the way, occurred within the past five years, so this is a relatively recent issue. Hearing stories like that really do make me believe that these, the use of such ambiguous language in these dress code policies, are used in an effort to kind of avoid disputes and kind of to avoid controversy surrounding how this might just be racist. Because it is, it's definitely related to race and it's related to not wanting students that are black, predominantly black, you know, people. Students that are people of color, not wanting them to be able to showcase their own cultural hairstyles, because the people that infringe on these rules established in these dress code policies are almost always students of color, as we can see through those recent stories I just mentioned. But unfortunately, stories like these only represent the tip of the iceberg when it comes to dress code policy issues and how they're linked to racism and sexism. Another issue is that many school boards and many school board policies related to dress codes tend to criminalize males of color based off of their rules that allow no do rags, no bandanas, etc. 
What many don't realize about policies like these is that they can actually be considered an element of the school-to-prison pipeline. So to explain this link between racism and that criminalization of males of color when talking about the school dress code, I wanted to read from an article written by Rand Miller, the director of the 21st Century Community Learning Center located in southern New Jersey. Historically, the do-rag for black men, along with the headscarf for black women, was a marker of inferior status, ensuring a fair-skinned slave couldn't pass for white and deterring white men from engaging in relations with black women. Eventually, black men transformed the do-rag into a means to keep hair protected from dust and sweat, as well as serve as an expression of black identity. So when you consider that cultural significance and background of these hairstyles that a lot of black students wear to school, seeing that it's considered inappropriate or unprofessional by the grooming standards of many public school counties and public school boards within the country, it seems pretty offensive. Meaning, all in all, many modern-day dress codes in secondary schools seem to promote gender and race-based discrimination, upholding standards of cleanliness and grooming that favor white students. But while the problems within the modern-day secondary school dress code policy seem to be very complex, there has been some positive progress, which can be seen through a school in Massachusetts. The most recent principal at East Longmeadow High School in Massachusetts actually said that she's tried to target inequalities at her school by creating a gender-neutral dress code and by involving students in the dress code process. Meaning, instead of saying things like no low-cut shirts or cleavage, the dress code says all private parts must be covered at all times. So really, a lot of the problems stemming from the modern-day secondary school dress code relate to the use of poor language. The use of ambiguous language that doesn't really specify what kind of hairstyles are being targeted when it's really targeting students of color, those are what the issues, that's why these issues exist. So instead of using gendered language, using gender-neutral language is honestly the start of a solution to the issues and the controversies surrounding the modern-day dress code. And although it's a very small thing, it's a very necessary step. That is a step that is much needed when ensuring that the school dress code is equitable to all. With that being said, you've made it to the end of this episode. I hope that through listening, you were able to gain even just a little bit of knowledge on the issues with the modern day secondary school dress code. And while its links to racism, sexism, and the school to prison pipeline are definitely complex, they can be fixed, starting with a change in both language and attitude. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts, and to keep up with the show, follow its Instagram at a little persp podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for a new episode here on A Little Perspective.